This 10 Talks podcast is a production of the 10 Words Project from WUOT-FM and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. Welcome to 10 Talks Bedtime Stories. I'm your host, Brittany Crocker. We've all lain awake in our beds wondering about those things that go bump in the night at one point or another. It seems like just as we're ready to call it a day and go to bed, our brains come alive and we become introspective, replaying our days and tune into every tiny noise we hear around us. Here at 10 Talks Bedtime Stories, we're taking a look at some of our responses from people around East Tennessee to our current 10 words question, what keeps you up at night? And while there's a lot, a lot that can be chalked up to our own fears and feelings especially. So today we're here with Ralph Liddick, the Robert H. Cole Professor of Neuroscience and a professor of psychology and anesthesiology. And after the break, we'll be joined by his wife, Helen Bagdoyan, a Beeman Professor of Psychology and Anesthesiology, to talk to us about the neuroscience behind our nighttime minds. Uh, Ralph, can you start by telling us just a little bit about how our brains change as the day starts to wind down? First thing I think, Brittany, that's important for people to realize is that this is a biologically based rhythm. In other words, if you think of it like breathing, we can only hold our breath for a certain amount of time, and that oscillation continues normally. And the sleep-wake cycle has a set of neurons in the brain that regulate this oscillation as well. The period length is longer than breath. We typically are awake for uh, 10 to 14 hours a day, 18 hours, most of us. Um, longer than breathing, but it is biologically based. So that's the first thing people really have to understand. And they sleep continues to be devalued as something to get over with, unfortunately. And uh, we would never think that way about breathing or the other biological rhythms. So you're talking about the circadian rhythm then? The it's shorter than circadian, but that's a good point also. There's, sleep is expressed with two rhythms, uh, an ultradian, ultra, meaning much less than 24-hour rhythm. And the REM, the, first of all, you need to know there are two stages of sleep, the non-rapid eye movement phase and the rapid eye movement phase. These are just descriptive names for the eye movements moving themselves. During the rapid eye movement phase, that's the phase where dreaming occurs. And the REM, non-REM cycle occurs about every 90 minutes. The circadian cycle, which you correctly talk about, is the 24-hour rhythm. So if people who are interested and knowledgeable about music will think about harmonics of different sound waves. And so it's a small rhythm, a fast rhythm, underneath this larger tent of a circadian rhythm. So I guess talking about it like music, what kind of things could interrupt this, this harmony? Right. So... There is an entire field of sleep disorders medicine, which has really emerged only in the last 60 or 70 years, which is very interesting. You know, everything that the physical anthropologists tell us make us human. When did humans first emerge? It's 50 to 70 million years ago. So people have been dreaming and sleeping for a long time. And um, the things that altered our, our sleep cycle include previous activity, diet, drugs, disease, anxiety, feelings, um, emotional events, and so on. That anxiety is one of the things we're looking at now. Um, the, the idea that many people feel more anxious at night, they feel more panic attacks, they feel more afraid of the things around them. Is there a reason for that? There's, um, there are many reasons, and I think the thing to 
differentiate for listeners is which parts of these among in themselves is normal and which part should require some attention by a healthcare professional. So, first of all, um, much of this is an opinion. Much of our daytime activity is designed to keep us from being in touch with our feelings. Um, why is it, you suppose, that most of the t- many of the TV shows are situation comedies? So people want to relax. They want to have their mind taken off problems at work, problems with the family, and so on. When we go into a quiet space, all of that external chatter goes away. And it's very interesting. When we go into a dark space for long enough, a period of isolation, what does the brain begin to do, first of all? First of all, it begins making pictures. Then it begins telling us a story. So as we shut down our daily activity, that happens normally. Then when we enter a phase of sleep, there is this entire neuronal circuitry that's activated normally and starts, in most of us, making dreams. All of us dream. Some people are better at remembering them than others. So the brain is fundamentally different during sleep than it is during wake. What about those transitional moments just before you fall asleep or those moments if you do wake up in the middle of the night before you can fall asleep again? I know you mentioned your brain starts with with pictures and then tells a story. Um, Does that have to do with kind of, I know I sit there and just replay the day sometimes and I'm like, oh, that was so embarrassing. Or even things I haven't thought about in years, something embarrassing I might have done in sixth grade. (laughs) will pop up and I'm just like go away like why does that matter right now (laughs) right well first of all that's totally normal and I think this is um, something that whatever a person's flavor of spiritual practice um, is something that all spiritually sophisticated people talk about what we do our behavior it's up there when it happens it's there forever and so these events will always be there, and they'll be there to recall whether we want to or not. So um, the other thing is um, these things also are a useful tool. Rather than viewing them as something to get rid of, um, the whole psychodynamic approach tells us that this is a way of gaining insight to our internal life. It tells us the things are important to us, It helps inform us about what our core values are. Uh, It tells us maybe some things that we should be attending to, uh, that maybe we're pushing aside, we're denying, we're trying to put out of the way. So so I think the other way to look at many of these feelings are as a resource. So when people say that dreams are some of those things we're not attending to that we need to, is that directly connected to pushing them out of the way when you're trying to fall asleep? It can be or it cannot be. It depends on the person, of course, and and the situation. Um, But the brain is chemically fundamentally different when we sleep than it is during wakefulness. And and one doesn't need a sleep evaluation or uh, brain recording to know this. Anyone who can remember their dreams, all of us who who dream and remember them, have a collection of dreams that we can recall throughout our life that are emotionally incredibly powerful and potent. We can still sometimes even remember the emotions. Um, then there are the, the mundane dreams, and there are the bizarre dreams, the dreams that 
include acts and thoughts and feelings that we would never have in our waking life. Mm -hmm. Now, that is viewed normally as a dream. We, but if you imagine during your waking activity suddenly flipping back into that state without any control, it's, it's a rather disturbing sort of thought. And so I think the idea to remember is that this is a normal process and um, the meaning of dreams depends on the person, depends on mm -hmm. their life. Yeah, I've noticed myself a lot more sensitive to things like that I've dreamed if they were especially powerful and to the point that they wake me up. I had a really bizarre dream once that my brother was going to cut off his nose for some reason or another and then get euthanized. I was like, why? And I was crying in my sleep and it woke me up and then I started crying. And the next day I was just like, why on earth was I even concerned? That's so ridiculous. But it, it affected me so much in the middle of the night that I couldn't handle uh, just thinking about it at all until I fell back asleep and remembered, I still remembered that first dream, but I, I could not grasp why it upset me so much. It's a perfect example of what your good questions and we've been talking about. And I think one of the tools that a person can do uh, is to keep a dream diary. And um, if one keeps a dream diary, and the way to do this, of course, is to keep your little spiral notebook right by the bed. Because as we all know, once we get up and we start our daily routine, these things melt away and we can only remember the most potent ones. Um, most of us wake up with an alarm clock. That helps um, a little bit. If you can wake up on the weekend after spontaneous awakening, you certainly will be more likely to remember your dreams. You know, there's a long history of people trying to uh, tell us what dreams mean. And in most um, classical um, religious texts, certainly in the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, there are interpretations of dreams. Now, the dream nosology of this collection of if you dream about this, it means this, that really has gone out of favor. Um, people who work with therapists or dream interpreter who are sophisticated and contemporary people, they will have the person reporting the dream tell them what it means, lead them to see what it means. So with regard to your dream, um, I bet if you had a diary of things that were going on in your life at that particular time, things you were concerned about, I, I would bet that you could find some associations and some links to interpret that dream. Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just had a show, actually our first show for the 10 Talks Bad Time Stories podcast was um, we brought up the tail end of it talking about lucid dreaming mm -hmm. with a woman from Knoxville. Where does lucid dreaming fall into this, these states of consciousness? That's a great question because it's exactly the way to think about it. There's a continuum of these states of consciousness. And lucid dreaming is somewhere along that continuum between the rapid eye movement sleep and wakefulness. Now, most of us, when we're in a dream, we are all in, if you will. In other words, we're totally into the dream. Some people have the ability to say, this is a dream. I'm only dreaming. And they have the ability to direct the course of the dream. I want the dream to go this way. I want the narrative or the story to unfold this way. And, and that's lucid dreaming. It's, it's been said, and there are a lot written about it, that a person can learn to be a lucid dreamer. 
And again, this issue, it's just like lifting weights. If you don't lift weights, you're not going to develop biceps. Mm -hmm. If you keep a dream diary, if you read about lucid dreaming, people, some people can learn to actually do this. You were talking about the chemicals that mm -hmm. come active in your brain as you fall asleep. Can you tell us about some of those and what they do? Sleep neurobiology is the, the field that describes this. And as you know, neuroscience um, is a hugely um, important and very exciting field. And sleep neurobiology has really developed uh, significantly in this country in the last 60 to 70 years. And every, in the same way that we in this culture have surnames, our last names, all of these neurons in the brain have chemical identities as well. Sometimes multiple identities, if you think about the way people now can hyphenate a last name. So these are chemicals that they manufacture, and these chemicals are what they use to communicate with other neurons. And there is a natural um, time course of when they're produced and released that parallels and causes states of consciousness, states of sleep. Manipulating those chemicals is one of the ways that clinical anesthesiologists eliminate waking consciousness to the benefit of healthcare. For us, when we go to sleep normally, um, there will be a decline in some chemicals in the brain and a rise in other chemicals in the brain. And it's this oscillation between these chemicals, those that promote wakefulness. As you and I are now having a dialogue, those chemicals are very active. Those, that group of chemicals, monoamines is one whole group of these, will decline when we sleep. Um, so it's one of the most exciting areas. In fact, one of the things that attracted us to come to the University of Tennessee was the opportunity to collaborate with colleagues here in the Department of Chemistry and with colleagues at Oak Ridge National Laboratory because it's now possible to measure hundreds of these chemicals at the same time. That's so fascinating. It sounds though the way these chemicals are just kind of programmed into a rhythm for us um, outside of manipulating them on purpose, they seem kind of like a fragile cycle. Just when I think about the priorities and the way I mess up my sleep cycle daily, what, what kind of consequences does it have? It's, a, it's a also a very perceptive point that you make. And unfortunately, as we started talking, we said that sleep continues to be devalued. Um, you know, a slide that I use in teaching is a three-legged stool, and the seat on the stool is health. And the three legs of the stool are diet, exercise, and sleep. So all of us have two sorts of diseases that we can anticipate. And you know, the insurance companies know exactly pretty much when each of us are going to meet our demise. Oh, wow. Based on our history, our lifestyle, and so on. And that's why they can stay in business selling insurance because the math is very good about that. So these three things are called modifiable risk, exercise, diet, and sleep. Uh, so it should not, none of those should be devalued. We would never it, give up having meals. Why would we then deprive ourselves of sleep? Mm -hmm. So one of the first steps towards having a healthy approach to sleep would be developing this concept called sleep hygiene. We have this concept called oral hygiene. We go to the dentist and they say floss after meals, brush after meals, and so on, wherever you can. And there is sleep hygiene. So coffee late at night is not good. Too much alcohol. <laughs> is not good. People think it promotes sleep. It actually inhibits sleep. It causes sleep onset. But then anyone who's ever had 
too much ethanol knows they wake up in the middle of the night. They never make it through the night. Just water. 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 It's very dehydrating, but it's not <laughs> just the dehydration. So, so those are two things. Exercise is also extremely important for modulating sleep. And I think the other important thing, if a person understands, we know not to take a breath when we're underneath the pool, right? We may be air hungry when we're swimming underwater. We know not to breathe, though. That's called cognitive override. And so understanding that rhythm of breathing can be applied to understanding sleep. At 3 a.m., our brains are very different. I tell people, never make an important decision at 3 a.m. My friend, my old roommate from South Korea actually said that there was, um, to me, it sounded like some kind of like a wives' tale, but he said between 2 and 4 a.m., no one should talk to you. And if you get any kind of phone call or message at that time, don't answer it because you're not yourself and everything is going crazy. And I was like, okay, I don't understand what you're talking about. But then, I mean, there's science behind this. There's science behind this. And the, the issue is, um, again, in terms of our emotional life, you know, brain, one area of the brain that we know regulates emotions is the amygdala. And the amygdala is very active during REM. And if you think about... And that's at 3 a.m.? That's at 3 a.m., very active. Most of the REM sleep occurs as you enter near the morning. So from, say, uh, say midnight till 3 or 4 or 5, whenever, six, whenever most people wake up in the morning. Uh, intense periods of REM uh, or dreaming sleep then. And all of us have had the experience of worrying about something, waking up in the middle of the night, not being, what, how am I going to solve this? What's this problem? It's usually about another person or a work situation or economics or health. And then if we can go back to sleep and sleep in and catch up, the next day, it's, the problem is still there. It just doesn't have the same severity that we, with which we imbue it during the middle of the night. Because of those chemicals. Because of those chemicals. Alive. It's entirely an artifact because that emotional gain is turned up so high that we look mostly at the emotional aspect of the problem relative, rather than the cognitive aspect. And solving any problem is always a balance between those two kind of things. That is incredible. Just, I don't know, that explains so much. I, I mean, I just remember in basic training for the Army, um, surprise listeners, <laughs> but there would be times that I'd just wake up just stressed out or I'd wake up for fire guard, which mm -hmm. was, you know, necessary. But the sense of urgency to fall back asleep is, has always been more for me knowing that I had to wake up in a few hours than it is if I wake up at, say, midnight, 1 a.m., even 11 p.m., if I wake up and I'm like, oh, I guess I need to go back to sleep. It, it just seems like I have so much more time. And I don't think it's necessarily just the time, now, now the way you describe it. It's this, this idea that that's my REM cycle. <laughs> exactly. And, and people um, in Air Training Command, for example, are very sophisticated about this. The submarine service is very sophisticated about this. Um, also, if you think about healthcare professionals, they have to be on duty 24-7. So it's a huge challenge for them. Um, they become very sophisticated about this, uh, careful about when they make decisions and so on. Hmm. So what, when you were talking about breathing under a pool, it, I couldn't help but think about my dad. He has sleep apnea and he has to use a machine to sleep. And there will be times that he'll randomly make this like puttering sound mm -hmm. like a motorboat and kind of wake mm -hmm. up. How does how do sleep disorders like sleep apnea or other potential disorders play into this rhythm? So that takes us 
from the emotional sphere that we've been focusing on to what in proper terminology we talk about as physiology, sleep physiology. And so um, people who work in the hospital and go around taking vital signs um, know that if you take heart rates or blood pressures every four hours throughout the night, they will vary normally as a function of the time of day. So not only are our brains different, and because the brain controls breathing, of course, um, our physiology is different. So sleep apnea um, is the second most common uh, treated sleep disorder. It's very common. All of us have a loved one who has this. Um, so your father is using a CPAP machine of some sort? Yes. Excellent. So the tr the, that is wonderful. Uh, it's, pro it's been shown to be very efficacious for treatment. The challenge, of course, for people, listeners who are using these machines know that um, the challenge is to keep using it. Mm -hmm. um, they'll think it doesn't go away. The disorder does not go away. So if you keep using the machine, though, they're very effective. Um, I had a much-loved grandfather who, it was a j at that time, uh, it was a joke that he snored. He was slightly heavy, uh, over 50. Um, those are the two, two indicators. Being male, that's the third indicator for sleep apnea. Unfortunately, he succumbed to uh, cardiovascular uh, demise, and that's because they didn't have CPAP then. So if you have a loved one that has CPAP, absolutely get them to a sleep disorder center to be evaluated for sleep apnea. Uh, it can save their life. So CPAP basically just keeps, keeps like everything kind of going while you're asleep. Well, there are two forms of apnea. One is a central apnea. There's this decreased drive to breathe. Mm -hmm. And the other is the obstructive variety. And then, as with everything in medicine, there's, make it even more complicated, there's a mixture. Some have partial, <laughs> central, partial, obstructive. But what happens is, in affected individuals for obstructive sleep apnea, that airway narrows or even closes. And it can happen 200, 300 times a night. And so they become oxygen-deprived, and it has terrible cognitive effects, emotional effects, and physiological effects if left untreated. The good news is that CPAP is non-invasive. It's often covered by insurance, and it's very effective treatment. So those chemicals are affected by these disturbances during apnea, the chemicals that regulate that rhythm? Absolutely. So the, the, the way the causal links go like this. The brain normally oscillates on its own, independent of what we want to do. And if you've ever had jet lag, you know it's like you cannot fight that urge to sleep when it comes at the normal time. Um, you can maybe stay awake, but you cannot fight feeling sleepy. And so when we're in, in this phase of sleep, our muscles become relaxed during REM sleep. There's an active inhibition of these muscles, or a motor atonia. And that's not just in our skeletal muscles, but it's also in our upper airway muscles. So during the REM period, the dreaming period of sleep, those airway muscles become flaccid and then can be sucked shut by the negative pressure that our diaphragm creates to bring air into the lung. So that's for the common variety of obstructive sleep apnea. But it's due to the brain changing. It's due to the second set of things that aren't really understood. It's partly mechanical, partly hormonal, um, and then there are factors that we don't understand yet. So that atonia you're talking about associated with REM sleep, does that have anything to do with the, the stories we've been hearing lately about sleep paralysis. Ah, absolutely. So this is a normal, the paralysis is normal. During the rapid eye movement phase of sleep, 
we do not normally act out our dreams. Um, um, th those of us who are aging athletes and have histories um, of playing athletics, uh, I will sometimes throw a, a hardball during one of my dreams, and my arm will go flying across my chest. I will have broken through the um, motor atonia of REM sleep. Um, if you ever watch a child sleep or a puppy sleep, um, their nervous system isn't fully developed. You'll see twitching, you'll see paw movements, and so on. They're as if they're running, they're dreaming, they'll make uh, muffled barking noises in our, in our pets. And this is overcoming that motor atonia. But yes, normally we are inhibited during sleep. So the, these stories you're hearing people report about sleep paralysis, is that when they've become awake suddenly during their REM cycle? Exactly. So if you think about it, it's like, again, I use this musical uh, analogy, you know, whether it's choral music or instrumental music. One of the amazing things about music is that it all starts at the same time normally, and a good performance, it all ends at the same time, those rhythms of the, of the sound. Our physiology is like an orchestra and since that we have our emotional life, our emotional rhythms, our physiological rhythms, our levels of arousal rhythms, and what you're talking about, sleep paralysis, is when a person regains consciousness before the offset, the end of the motor atonia. So they're awake, they know they're awake, but they can't move. And it's very disturbing for some people, um, depending on the duration of the paralysis, and if they don't know what's happening and how often it occurs. But it sounds like it's totally normal. It, can be, it can be normal. And again, factors such as duration, um, frequency will determine whether or not it's normal or not. That's a lot more comforting than some of the depictions you see of it with these demons just lunging at you in your sleep, like, don't move. Right, exactly. <laughs> Those are very powerful images. I know what you're describing. <laughs> um, so I guess since we're talking with you and your wife next, uh, do any of these things change when you're sleeping with a partner as far as those, those chemicals or any of those anxiety spikes? Right. So co-sleeping co um, is probably one of the things that brings most, not to be disloyal gentlemen, but one of the things that brings most men uh, for treatment for sleep apnea. And it's oftentimes the bed partner who will um, say, you know, we've got to be, you've got to be seen about this because I cannot sleep because of your snoring. And, um, you know, one of the interesting facts, someone actually measured snoring, and snoring noise levels can exceed OSHA guidelines for ear damage. <laughs> so it can be quite loud in some people. Um, so, but, I mean, some of these, uh, the more chemical responses and things like that, are any of those more regular when you're sleeping with a partner, or does that just have nothing to do with it? No, that's only in the sense that if that partner has a disorder, as I was given an example of sleep apnea, they will cause the co-sleeper to awake. And, of course, every mother who's ever been through this period of bringing baby home from hospital and um, getting baby through that first uh, six months, uh, of course, this is a group that... Um, has extensive experience with sleep disruption, repeated awakenings, and also being totally keyed in to noises coming from the crib or the baby's mm -hmm. room. So in that sense, um, we are influenced. But the, the rhythms themselves, the chemistry itself, except insofar as our co-sleepers wake us up, um, they do not alter. But any sense of um, 
comfort to the emotional stability or sensitivity of a person during that time then is more person to person. Absolutely. And I think, again, you know, there's a reason that <clears throat> talking therapy persists. As human beings, we, uh, we get a lot from communicating with others, whether it's a co-sleeper, whether it's a colleague, whether it's a therapist and so on. So in that sense, yes, um, you know, you have a terrible dream, you can talk about it, you can be reassured, everything's going to be fine, we haven't gotten the lab report yet from the test you had, maybe everything's fine, that kind of example would be where a person can help talk another person down, feel better, keep things in perspective. So is there anything that we can do to make our sleep cycles a little bit more stable? Yes, this takes us back to the sleep hygiene story. And one of the things to do, and much of this is on the web now. People can use their favorite search engine to search for sleep hygiene. And so uh, they include examples things that we can do of um, not taking stimulants too late at night. And we already talked about alcohol. A little alcohol with dinner is a, is a Western habit that uh, has been shown to have many health effects, but again, it's a dose-dependent phenomenon. Um, exercise, again, um, is a huge thing that we can do to regularize our cycle. There are data now that are recently uh, very interesting. You know, many of us read electronic devices in bed. And without saying any product names, um, that light has now been shown, the data are quite convincing, that light can also reset our rhythms. So um, I like to read from those kind of devices, but now I've changed my habit about how late I do that. And if it's very late at night, I'm going to be using normal bedroom light and reading from a paper copy. But those are the four things that a person can do primarily. I think also attending to one's emotional life rather than, I mean, there's a certain amount of denial that's healthy that we all do, but there are some things that just need to be attended to and dealt with. And, and so I think total denial, uh, no one would ever advocate that. I think that's certainly, uh, you know, Insomnia is the primary sleep disorder. It is the most common sleep disorder. 10% of people in the U.S. suffer from insomnia. And um, so it's very normal to have it occasionally. And the extent to which a person can say it's normal or abnormal depends on that person and their life. And insomnia, again, is just another, is that another consequence of that rhythm being interrupted? Or is it more coming from the inside out? It's, it's more coming from the inside out. And there are sort of three factors. Spillman is someone who came up with the so-called three Ps. There are these predisposing factors, genes that we inherited from our parents. Some people are short sleepers. Some people are long sleepers. Some people have disruptive sleep. So there's predisposing factors. There's, there's precipitating factors. Something bad happened at work. Uh, and then there's perpetuating factors. These are things that were, that just keep having it happen. And oftentimes, worrying about, am I going to sleep tonight? Am I going to sleep tonight? I have to perform tomorrow. That can be an example of a perpetuating factor. Yeah, I can think of plenty of times that I've, I haven't slept in over a day and I'm like, I'm just going to go home and sleep. And I get home and I'm just laying there and I'm like, I can't sleep. And I don't fall asleep until probably midnight, even though I just spent about 30 something hours awake. Right. And so this issue of hyper arousal, and uh, is, is one thing that happens to people. And many of our jobs, you're, you're mentioning the military, if a person 
is in certain situations, they must be aroused to do their job. Uh, providing clinical care is another example. Um, and it takes time to come down from that. I think if you think about people who are performers doing these incredibly intense scenes in, in a play or in music, I mean, it takes them a long time to come down. So um, I think having realistic expectations where it's not an on and off switch. We can't turn it on and off like a light switch. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to break here in a second, but after the break, we'll be joined by Ralph's wife, Helen Bagdoyan, who is also a neuroscientist and an expert on sleep disorders, to continue our conversation about those things that go bump in the night. Welcome back to 10 Talks. We are continuing tonight's bedtime story, now joined by Helen Bagdoyan, who is a Beeman professor and also is Ralph's wife and colleague. She's here to talk to us a bit about neurochemistry in states of sleep and anesthesia. So Helen, can you tell me a little bit about what you do and studying neurochemistry and some of these differences between states of consciousness? My work. I've been funded um, since 1989 by the National Institute of Mental Health to study the relationship between brain neurochemistry and uh, behavioral states, and such as, in particular, sleep and wakefulness. And I also study um, anesthetic states and the neurochemistry of anesthetic states. What how that relates to mental health, of course, is that all psychiatric disorders are characterized by sleep disruption, and in turn, disrupted sleep exacerbates the symptoms of many psychiatric disorders. So there's a bidirectional relationship, and there is um, there are different kinds of sleep disruptions with different psychiatric disorders, but the implication of that is that there are common underlying mechanisms, brain mechanisms, we're talking about the neurobiology of between sleep states and um, affective states or states of the brain in terms of mood and... So these mechanisms, um, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> mechanisms meaning the brain is made up, with how the brain is made up of about 100 billion neurons, and those neurons communicate with each other a couple of ways, one of which is by chemical neurotransmission. So trans, uh, neurons release transmitters, chemicals called neurotransmitters, and those chemicals pass on the electrical signal from one neuron to the next neuron. And when people are asleep, th this the way these mechanisms act is different than when they're awake? Absolutely, and um, absolutely. And so the neurochemistry of the brain changes across states of sleep and wakefulness, and it's, the neurochemistry of the brain is different in different brain regions. So you have a state, a behavioral state specificity of brain neurochemistry, and you have brain region specificity because you know different functions of the brain are directed or regulated by different parts of the brain so and there are 
hundreds of transmitters and many, many substances that are active in the brain um, in addition to transmitters and many to yet be discovered. So a lot of your work in anesthesiology then is looking at um, the, these different transmitters and things and these substances and like how they can interact with medicines to keep someone anesthetic. Anesthetized. <laughs> yes, very good. So, we, yes, and the one of the interesting things about anesthesia, um, you know, anesthesia is a drug-induced loss of consciousness. Um, when we go to sleep every night, we lose consciousness, and that's an endogenous. In other words, that system is within us. We evolved. All animals evolved to have mechanisms for losing consciousness. So uh, when we, when Ralph and I were at Penn State, we put forth this hypothesis that anesthetics act preferentially on some of the endogenous mechanisms that have evolved to cause a loss of consciousness. And since then, that hypothesis has gotten some attention from us and from others in the field, and a lot of people have shown that um, this is correct and have identified, many investigators now have identified different pathways and different transmitters and different mechanisms where anesthetics act to cause either a loss of consciousness or then the removal of those anesthetics can promote wakefulness. So my clinical colleagues in anesthesia use these drugs very expertly, um, but really we don't know the mechanisms by which anesthetic drugs cause a loss of waking consciousness and an insensibility to pain. And the drugs are effective and they're very safe. They have a number of unwanted side effects. And so the idea is if we can better understand the mechanisms and again, mechanisms meaning which trans, which parts of the brain are involved, which transmitters, which receptors, which signaling pathways, and so forth, which genes are important for the generation of anesthetic states, then we can counteract, we can develop rational countermeasures for the side effects. So going back to sleep disorders or disruptions and neuropsychiatric conditions, how are the ways that anesthetic acts on the brain different from some um, sedatives and anti-anxiety medications mm -hmm. and anticonvulsants that people will be given for anxiety disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress responses, mm -hmm. and things of that nature? Mm -hmm. Well, for the drugs that are used to anesthetize people, the goal of giving those drugs is that you lose consciousness. Drugs that are used to treat depression, anxiety, um, are not, don't have as their goal a loss of consciousness. So you want, what you want to do when you treat those conditions is keep people awake and alert while ameliorating their symptoms of anxiety or their symptoms of depression. What about sleeping pills? Sleeping medications, that's another, um, that's another story. And some, so most sleeping medications that the ones that are FDA indicated mean they've passed all the tests and they are indicated for the treatment of insomnia. Many of those drugs act at the GABA receptor in the brain, and that is also the site of action for many anesthetic drugs. So right there, you've picked up on one common mechanism, and that is 
activation of these inhibitory GABA-A receptors. And when anesthetic drugs or sleeping medications activate these receptors, these GABA-A receptors, neurons that promote wakefulness are inhibited and we have a loss of waking consciousness at the most simplistic level. But there, there's a, there's a, a difference <laughs> between um, the loss of consciousness when you fall asleep and the loss of consciousness when you're anesthetized, even though you know, sleep is used as a metaphor by anesthesiologists. If you do go for an operation and the anesthesiologist will tell you that they're going to put you to sleep because it's a sort of a comforting and familiar metaphor. But the Unless states you have animals, and then you're like, wait, you're going yes, to what? Yes, and that's right. My brother's a private practice veterinarian, and when he puts his patients to sleep, it's something quite different than when an anesthesiologist puts their patients to sleep. So sleep is a metaphor for death. It's a metaphor for anesthesia, and it is in of itself a state which many of us desire to be in. in and hope to stay in throughout the night. When we're looking at um, medically induced sleep, sleep, medically induced uh, loss of consciousness, um, and, and wakefulness, like, is there a spectrum for the different states of consciousness then, or is that just them? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a great question. And there's a spectrum of, in, t- in other words, consciousness occurs along a continuum. And... Um, even the different anesthetic states, the anesthetic states produced by different anesthetic drugs are different from each other. So the same different anesthetic drugs do not produce the same state as defined by a constellation of traits. For example, um, how do we define the how do we define anesthetic state? Anesthesia is defined by a loss of waking consciousness, muscle relaxation, reduced autonomic responses, an insensibility to pain, and um, amnesia. So there are five classic signs of anesthesia. Those five signs can't be produced by one drug. So they're produced by a mixture of drugs, referred to as balanced anesthesia. And anesthesiologists are expert at mixing the drugs that and co-administering the drugs that are needed to produce all of those signs, depending on what the operation is. When, and one of the things that's very interesting about anesthesia is when people are anesthetized and then when they wake up, regain consciousness from the anesthetic, there's a, a sort of a lack of a sense of passage of time. Whereas when you go to sleep at night, you, you know, you don't accurately gauge how long you've slept, but you have the sense that time has passed. You don't lose that sense. You don't fall out of the bed. Mm-hmm. You know where the edges of the bed are, that sort of thing. So you retain some sort of consciousness. When, you're, when you are given general anesthetics, one of the roles of the anesthesiologist, they're very important, and they really take over your, all your, your life for you, and they manage, and they keep you alive and they bring you back to consciousness. Sleeping medications, you can take them alone at the, at the right dose <laughs> and safely in your own bedroom, and you'll wake up in the morning. They do seem to kind of blur that line between those states of consciousness, though, um, than just normal sleep when you have your, your rhythm and you know like about how much time you slept. Exactly. A lot of people I know that have taken sleeping medications We'll talk about lost time or they'll talk about um, just 
not really ever feeling quite awake in the morning and not really ever feeling quite ready to sleep until it's just like lights out. So it depends on the drug and some drugs are longer acting than others. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there are some sort of short acting um, sleeping medications that can be taken if you wake up say at two or three in the morning and you need to be up again by eight so you can get to work on time. You can take these shorter acting uh, sleeping medications and they have what's called a shorter half-life. They're the time that they are active in the body and acting on the brain mm -hmm. is short, whereas they're much longer acting sleeping medications that will last a whole eight hours. One of the problems with many sleeping medications is there there are hangover, so-called hangover effects. And the there are metabolites of those drugs, perhaps, or there, there's changes in brain chemistry as a result of taking those drugs. The states of sleep that are produced by sleeping medications are not identical in structure to naturally occurring states of sleep. So it's better than getting no sleep, but it's not perfect. It's not a perfect mimicry of normal sleep. In other words, normal healthy sleep in a young adult, someone like yourself, you fall asleep, you descend through, there's four stages now they refer to three stages of non-REM sleep, slow-wave sleep. So you descend through stage one, two, and three, three slash four in the old nomenclature. And then you ascend again up to stage two and one to enter the rapid eye movement stage of sleep. Mm -hmm. So you can divide sleep, first of all, into two major uh, types, non-REM sleep, non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then rapid eye movement sleep. And rapid eye, and they're completely different states, first of all. So REM sleep is a very active state of the brain. It's when this, um, the really crazy kind of dreams occur. Uh, it, the brain is as active metabolically and electrically during REM sleep as it is during waking. And if you study with uh, imaging studies, you can see that. Uh, glucose utilization, if you record the electrical activity of the brain, you can see that. And in fact, when um, REM sleep was discovered initially, uh, the French named it paradoxical sleep. They call it paradoxical sleep because if you look at the EEG or the brain waves of a person or an animal in REM sleep, you would think that that person or animal is awake because the brain waves look like waking waves. But if you look at the behavior, you'll see that this person or animal is in, in a sleep posture. And so that's the paradox. And does the brain look different in, in terms of these behaviors with someone who's been uh, like medically induced sleep through, through sleeping pills or yes. natural? Yes. So there's stage, uh, the lighter stages of sleep, non-REM sleep, or stages one and two, and then the deeper stage is stage three with big delta, what they call delta waves, very slow if you electrical activity with a frequency of about 0.5 to 4 hertz or cycles per second. So if you look at the polygraph, you know, you'll see these big waves, and they indicate the deepest sort of restorative phase of sleep. Many sleeping medications tend to eliminate or reduce the deepest stages of slow wave sleep. And so you get lighter stages of sleep, um, which are stages one and two, which are important also, but they don't get, it's not the same 
architecture. It's referred to as sleep architecture. So you descend down to stage three, four, then you ascend up again, you have a REM period, then you descend and ascend. And across the night, um, most of the deepest stages of sleep occur in the first half of the night. And then the second half of the night is when you have more REM sleep. REM occurs about every 90 minutes. And then, but the duration of each REM episode lengthens throughout the night. And you transition from the lighter stages of sleep into REM in the second half of the night. So that's referred to as architecture, and it's exquisitely regulated. We don't know what the functional roles of all those rhythms are and why we need to do it that way, but sleeping medications, you lose consciousness, you have some REM, you have some non-REM, you have less deep sleep for sure, so your whole architecture has changed. And in fact, some of the more recently approved um, sleeping medications have been studied but um, for a long time to show that sleep is enhanced in people with insomnia, but we don't know what those drugs do to rapid eye movement sleep because they, these drugs haven't been studied with a polygraph, polysomnography, with polysomnography so you can identify the REM episodes. So we really don't know what effect some of these drugs have on REM sleep based on the older benzodiazepines, um, studies with older benzodiazepines, they are, they, many of them suppress at least some of REM sleep. How, how do sleep disturbances influence conditions such as like anxiety or uh, traumatic stress conditions? Like well, how? anxiety actually t disrupts sleep. sleep. So anxiety comes before sleep disruption and that's been looked at in the literature and it's fairly accepted now that once you get anxious that tends to result in poor sleep by contrast insomnia precedes the onset of depression and so people with insomnia and chronic insomnia have an increased risk of going on to develop depression so it's specific for different sleep disorders and different, um, you know, psychiatric disorders or different affective states. What other um, psychiatric disorders can be linked to sleep disturbances? Um, there, it's, I wouldn't say linked to so much as characterized by, I think is a better, we, we don't know the, we know pretty well the, there's a, relationship that insomnia precedes the onset of um, depression. For psychiatric disorders, such for, for example, for schizophrenia, sch patients with schizophrenia have terrible sleep. Um, it's not uh, clear what causes that sleep disruption, and it's not clear what causes psychiatric symptoms. They have some of the worst sleep of any of anybody, unfortunately. They can't sleep through the night, they have circadian rhythm disruptions so that their sleep is not consolidated at night. Um, Meaning they, they have, sleep throughout the day, like at different times? They may sleep, yes, that's right. Their sleep isn't distributed as it should be across the 24-hour cycle. They also have different patterns of sleep. There's a pattern um, in the EEG called spindling. It's a, it's a wave frequency of about 10 to 14 hertz approximately. And those spindles are important. They're in stage two non-REM sleep. They're important and seem to play some kind of a role in learning and memory, for example. 
people with schizophrenia have fewer spindles, um, sleep spindles, and they may, that may in part be related to learning and memory deficits in these people. We don't know, but there's a, that's a current hypothesis. And so perhaps if we could enhance their spindling sleep, that might help improve some of the um, learning and memory problems. But it's very, they're very complicated. And one of the reasons why it's so complicated is that there isn't any one transmitter that, or one brain area that regulates any of these traits of, of uh, sleep states. So sleep, and we talked about anesthetic traits, sleep tra state traits of sleep include, uh, and there, there's different traits for every state. But if we talk about non-REM sleep in general, we have um, slowing of the EEG, slowing of autonomic variables, heart rate slows, breathing slows, um, muscle relaxes, and mental activity is generally quieter than during waking. Blood pressure is lower, and everything's more regular. During rapid eye movement sleep, um, the brain I told you about is active. Skeletal muscle tone is completely and totally inhibited. So we are actually paralyzed every 90 minutes throughout the night when we enter REM sleep. So we can't, um, we couldn't get up and walk around and act out our dreams, perhaps. That's one reason why that happens, because the motor cortex, the part of the brain, the part of the cortex that controls movement is highly, highly active during REM sleep and sending impulses to the muscles all the time. But the muscles are actively inhibited, so they don't respond to those commands. So those are, so, so the traits that characterize different states are, um, not are they're different for different states, and they're not all reproduced again by sleeping medications. And it sounds like if they take parts and if it is influenced by different places in the brain, yes. like an anesthetic state, it would take more than one small cocktail of medication to really mimic it in the first place. Yes, and that's right. And so each of these traits is controlled by multiple transmitters. Thank you. And and multiple regions. So figuring all that out is a challenge. You were talking about people being paralyzed in REM cycles, mm -hmm. and uh, we had had an interesting discussion about that when Ralph was here about uh -huh. sleep paralysis yes. and how a lot of people have been reporting coming awake during their REM cycles and being unable to move. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really interesting. But we also had a show pretty recently on co-sleeping in which uh, someone was talking about breastfeeding children in, in the bed and that women could kind of just unconsciously come out of sleep states knowing when their kid was hungry and just kind of roll over and do that. Is that normal? Is it easy to come out of a REM cycle? It's actually easier to come out of a REM cycle than a deep sleep cycle because your brain is much closer, your brain activity is closer to the waking brain than a deep stage of sleep. So what's the difference between being woken out of one and being able to move and then people who come out of a REM cycle and experience sleep paralysis? Mm -hmm. I, I, that happened to me a couple times when I was a student, actually. It's not uncommon. It's very scary. <laughs> um, it, it, it's not uncommon to have that kind. And those are referred to as state dissociations. Mm -hmm. And they hap if they happen sporadically and once or twice, it's not... Um, considered a disorder. It's just sort of 
part, it's normal to have mm-hmm. that happen sometimes. If it persists, and then it becomes a disorder. What happens is there are, mul- again, there's multiple generators, if you will, in the brain, neuronal groups that generate. There's a group that generates atonia. There's another group that generates the EEG activation. There's another group that generates these blood pressure surges and so forth. So, and there's and so all those neurons, those different centers, if you will, have to be coordinated in time, and they all have to, oh, that inhibition, say, of the motor tone, has to turn off at the same time that consciousness turns on. If you get a dissociation for some reason between the motor control neurons and the um, brain consciousness, the cortical neurons that recognize that you're awake, then you're going to have waking consciousness and you're still going to have atonia. And so why that would happen in the normal brain, maybe a person had took some drugs that they were, even a prescription drug that they should, maybe they were sleep deprived, or maybe it's just sort of random. I mean, it's it's pretty complicated. So it's I think it's just amazing actually that one can be sort of normal as often as one can be normal, given <laughs> given how complicated um, the regulation of perception and sense of self and all those things are. Is there when you're looking at these EEGs and um, readings from people's brains as they sleep? Is there a normal, or do things kind of vary person to person? Um, there is a no- there are normal standards, and there are very there's handbooks. So people who become sleep medicine physicians, they um, first finish a residency in either neurology or psychiatry. So they go to medical school, and then they take three or four years of postgraduate post medical school training to become certified as neurologists or pulmonologists or psychiatrists or occasionally anesthesiologists, but rarely pediatricians and so forth. Mostly it's neurologists, psychiatrists, and pulmonologists who become go on to become sleep medicine doctors. And then they do a fellowship for a year, and they have to learn to read the EEGs and um, a, a bunch and many, many other things. There's a, the textbook of sleep medicine is about the classic textbooks, about this thick by uh, Krieger, Roth, and Demence, several inches thick, packed full of information of um, all the things that can go wrong. So it's highly, it's highly specialized. It's a, it's a specialty branch of medicine that happens after residency training in order to become certified as a sleep medicine physician. So they learn what's normal and what's abnormal. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed your bedtime story. Be sure to tune in to 10 Talks next week for The Buck Doesn't Stop, where we'll be talking about student loans and retirement. And remember, you can always find out more information about the 10 Words Project on our website, wuot.org, or you can follow us on Twitter. That's at 10 Words with two N's, where we'll publish some of your anonymous responses to our current question every day. We also keep a running archive on Instagram. Again, that's at 10 words. And there you can see photos of all of our responses, the funny, the bizarre, the serious, the thought-provoking, all of them. 
thanks a bunch to Ralph Littick and Helen Bagdoyan for joining us on the show this evening. And thanks to everyone on the 10 Words team and all the good folks over at the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. The music for Bedtime Stories is by Todd Steed and the Sons of Fear. That's P-H-E-R-E, kind of like Sons Fear. <laughs> if you like it, you can hear a whole lot more of it on Bandcamp. Sleep tight, Knoxville. <laughs>